Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you. And your book just arrived in the mail about a week ago. And I have to tell you, I am so impressed with it. And what a beautiful cover. I mean, we all know as authors how important the cover is because often people make an emotional choice about if they're going to buy the book based on the cover. And, man, you really uh, got a slam dunk there with, uh, with this you know, really awesome-looking book. Absolutely. Llewellyn did an absolutely fantastic job with the cover. Um, their art department were absolutely amazing. They, they used images that they had available, put the whole lot together, and it really, really pops. I am so happy with them. And I, I might also add that they have been a, um, a class act all the way through, going through the book, 
editing, um, doing the layout for me. Um, they've been absolutely a dream to work with. Well, that's really good to hear. Um, you know, it, it's been ages since I've heard any authors talk about Llewellyn, and in the 90s, authors didn't have much good to say. So, you know, I'm glad to hear your experience was good. Maybe, uh, you know, sounds like things maybe are much different over there at Llewellyn these days. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad for you in, in your new book. Well, Llewellyn always had a reputation for putting out 101-level books, which are really important. But the thing is that there was always a shortage of, of more advanced books. And now they seem to be putting out quite a number of books which are aimed at intermediate and advanced practitioners of, um, of various oh. spiritual modalities. There are, there, there is, they have some absolutely amazing books to choose from. So um, they they do seem to be broadening um, the, the the books that they're putting out. So um, and like, like I said, my experience with them has has been very very good. I have no good. complaints whatsoever. So now your Greco Egyptian magic, um, your first book, uh, did they also put that one out, or did you have another publisher? No, that actually came out through Imanian, which is a small press in the UK. Um, Imanian is a press that's owned by a science fiction writer called Storm Constantine. And the thing is that she initially wanted to keep all her books in print. And, um, and then once she accomplished that, then she thought she'd get a few friends' books out. And she was basically targeting non-mainstream books, the sort of books that wouldn't get picked up by um, publishers like Luella and Wise and New Page and the like. And... Um, so I submitted my book to them, and they wound up running with it. Now, just as I submitted the book, um, Imanian wound up splitting so that they created another imprint called Megalithica. So Megalithica was for non-fiction books, while Imanian remained for fiction books. So it kind of huh. technically came out through Imanian slash Megalithica. But um, like I said, they're, they're based in Staffordshire in the U.K., but they do have um, a U.S. base of operations, and um, I suppose I can give a shout out to their to their manager in the um, in, in the U.S., Taylor Elwood, who was also the editor of of Great Egyptian Magic. So he did a, a fantastic book and a fantastic job in getting the book out there. Well, yeah, um, actually, well. I know Storm and Taylor myself because, uh, they are, you know, the anthology that I curated, Goddess 2.0, Emanion uh, slash Megalithica, uh, they put that out. And, uh, yeah, good yes. things to say about them uh, from me as well. Okay, well, look, let's, uh, let's jump in um, and talk about what uh, people have uh, tuned in to listen to, which is uh, basically about uh, the Greek religion today and... Uh, uh, and we're going to get into why it's relevant and uh, hallucinogens and all of that. But, you know, let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, how was it, uh, is there a story, uh, you know, attached to how you, uh, you know, became so interested in the ancient Greek religion? Um, there is a bit of a story, and I'll share it with you. Um, but before I get into that, I might point out that a lot of people get drawn to an ancient religion through a genealogical link, namely a blood connection. So, for instance, if you're of Greek descent, then I can imagine people of Greek descent being drawn to venerating the Greek gods, much as if you have Norse blood 
or Scandinavian blood coursing through your veins, then you may well find yourself being drawn towards heathenry. In my case, it was more um, a sense of familiarity. The, the gods just felt incredibly familiar to me. Um, part of that is, because, well, I suppose it could be a past life connection. I've investigated a number of past lives. I so far haven't found one that was in ancient Greece itself, but it, it isn't outside the realm of possibility. But the thing is that um, from the time of the European Renaissance, which was from the 14th to the 17th centuries, which literally means a rebirth of the classical world, at least until the 19th century, a classical education, which involved a study of ancient Greek and Latin texts, became standard throughout much of the Western world. As a result, um, Latin and Greek myths permeated the works of numerous artists, writers, poets, playwrights, and composers. In the 20th century, the film industry wound up cottoning on to Greek mythology. So whenever you watch um, television or, or go to the movies, chances, there, there's a very good chance you're going to find an entertaining movie that has connections to Greek mythology. I mean, last year we had Wonder Woman, um, which was an absolutely amazing movie. In 2014, we had two Hercules movies, Hercules and also The Legend of Hercules. The year before that, there was Percy Jackson's Sea of Monsters. The year before that, there was Wrath of the Titans. The year before that, there was Immortals. The year before that, we had Percy Jackson, the Olympians, the Lightning Thief, and Clash of the Titans. Um, and then a few years before that, I, I think in 2004, we had Troy and Alexander coming out. So all those movies draw on, on ancient Greek history and, and mythology. So the thing is that um, the ancient Greek myths tend to feel very, very familiar to us. And if I could share a story, in the mid-90s, I would attend gatherings in Sydney. Um, we, had, we had gatherings called Pagans in the Pub. Up on the Gold Coast, there was um, Pagans in the Park, where Pagans would get together and discuss things. And um, so one night... Uh, every couple of weeks or so, people would get together in a pub and talk about various things. We'd have a, um, a talking stick, which was just an object that would be passed around from person to person, and they would then, whoever was holding it, had the right to speak. And on this one occasion, the topic of discussion was pantheons. So bear in mind, this is Sydney in the mid-90s. And so there were a couple of people who said that they would like to get into the Celtic gods because because of their ancestry, but didn't really know anything about them. There were a couple of other people who said they were interested in the Egyptian gods, but only had a vague understanding what they were like. Um, there was one guy who said that he would go to the seaside, and he would feel the presence of the divine by the sea. Um, but what kept coming up time and time again was that a lot of people said that they were familiar with the Greek gods. And that kind of stayed with me, and it also verified my feeling of familiarity with them. And when you look at my first book, Greco Egyptian Magic, while I could have used other pantheons to undertake a process of planetary initiation, I wound up working with the Greek gods. Um, I felt very okay. comfortable working with them, and I also thought that people would be able to resonate with those gods far better than they would if I had chosen um, Egyptian gods or, or even Roman gods. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, I, I it's guess, a case you know, of familiarity. Some, the gods resonating with me. Sorry. 
Yeah, yeah, and sometimes it isn't always logical, um, and sometimes it isn't, you know, uh, you know, uh, who our ancestors were either. I mean, because for me, um, why in the heck was it ISIS? I don't know. Um, you know, I'm I'm not of you know uh, African heritage, and uh, and you know, and it wasn't that the Egyptian pantheon um, felt particularly. Um, you know, easy to understand, but there was something about ISIS, and yeah. um, and and then and then later Sekhmet, and and also too, you know, we had traveled. It was interesting because uh, Roy and I had traveled to Egypt, and what was unusual, uh, or or and it and it still sort of strikes me weird today, is that when we were actually there, there was this weird feeling of home. You know, so here was this, you know, mm. California girl, you know, formerly from New Orleans, who for some reason when she's, you know, on, you know, uh, on terra firma, uh, Egypt, uh, feeling like uh, this was familiar territory. So, you know, maybe sometimes it's a, um, you know, maybe it's a past life thing. Maybe, but the other thing is that when people get DNA tests done, most of us seem to have African blood. It might only be a small percentage, but it's all there. Yeah. So you may yeah. be particularly resonating with that small African component that you have. True. Uh, it could, could very well be true. Um, okay, so um, uh, did the Greeks, you know, were they sort of universal or uniform? Did all the Greeks practice their religion the same way, or were they just as eclectic as uh, Christians are, or, or uh, cafeteria Catholics are today? <laughs> cafeteria Catholics. They were actually um, very eclectic in their practices. Um, the thing is that you had... Um, it, practices varied from region to region and from time to time. So, um, and there was a number of academics that actually referred to ancient Greek religions rather than talking about ancient Greek religions um, singular. So the thing is, the Greeks had no primary text outlining religious practices. There was no founder. There was no centrally organized church or priesthood. And most scholars actually believe that there was no formal training or ordination for priests and priestesses. The Greeks in those days lived in several hundred independent small city-states that differed from each other in religious beliefs and practices which changed over the centuries. There were also many Greeks living in isolated rural areas. More is known about Athens than any other city-state. And so this is where most religious studies tend to have their primary focus. The most prolific writings pertaining to religion are those of the philosophers and other intellectuals, but they're not necessarily representative of popular, of popular belief. Um, in Athens, the basic social unit was the oikos, or household, which consisted of a family, their slaves, and their estate. The next largest unit was the genos, or noble kin group of aristocrats. All Athenians were members of a fratry, or brotherhood, and there were at least 30 of those in Athens. There are also country districts or villages known as deems. So it's important to note that each household, each noble kin group, each fratry, and each deem had their own methods of worship. The, hmm. I think that the function Tony, of public Tony, religion Tony, was... Tony, I, I, I have to... I, I have to 
Tony, I have to interrupt you real quick. Doesn't Sorry. it sound like paganism today? <laughs> you know, where Absolutely. none of us can ever agree on anything, and we're all doing it our own way. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Exactly. I'm sorry. But Go ahead. I couldn't resist. No, 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 no. no it's no. It's it's a great point. But the thing is, um, there was a guy called Xenophon who was known for his histories in the fourth century BCE. He wrote about his experiences as the leader of 10,000 Greek mercenaries who fought their way back to Greece. So even though those mercenaries were drawn from numerous Greek cities, and despite having different religious beliefs and practices, they managed to find common ground. So they would do that in order to to form community. Um, In my case, for instance, whenever we go along anywhere, I don't identify as Wiccan. but yet, whenever I go anywhere, chances are, if there's going to be a group ritual, it's going to be Wiccan. So what do I do? I participate, because it brings the whole community together. So um, I think we have to draw a distinction between what we do privately and what we do publicly. So you set aside your differences, you come together, and you do whatever ritual is on offer, because it brings everyone together. Yeah, that's a good point because, look, I, I, I mean, I know groups that have split up over how to call a corner, you know, um, or, uh, or, or or what does, you know, what does the energy of such and such feel like, you know. I mean, um, sometimes it can get uh, it get crazy out there. But um, were, were there I'm, I'm, any underlying... Actually, 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 actually I'm going I'm to interrupt you. Um, I'm very, very familiar with that because coming from Australia, um, there were all sorts of disputes regarding that very thing that you're talking about. So, for instance, in the Northern Hemisphere, when people trace out a circle, they move deosil. Deosil literally means sunwise. So the sun, the sun moves clockwise in the Northern Hemisphere. In the, um, in the Southern Hemisphere, it moves the opposite way. So to move sunwise, you're actually moving Wittishans relative to... Um, to the to the northern hemisphere. So what happens is that you've got some people who feel that they should be following the, the direction of the sun. Other people think, well, no, that's it, it, it's evil to move Wittishans. They don't want to move that way. And there are also disputes as to what elements are, are related to, to each of the quarters. Um, so that has led to huge disputes. Right. Um, so well, they're, they're, they're very well, common in the southern hemisphere. Well, you know, that reminds me, you know, with me being sort of ISIS-oriented, you know, here in Southern California, <clears throat> Roy and I started the ISIS Ancient Culture Society, and it went on for about 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. And it ended just, just when I, I did, uh, I, I got the opportunity to write my Sacred Places of Goddess book, because I couldn't keep up the nonprofit and write a book and work full-time, you know, I, I, you know, it was just all too much. But anyway, my, where I'm going with this is, um, you know, one of the things we did was we tried to take um, ancient Egyptian rituals, particularly Isis rituals. We would research them, and we would try to uh, try to um, maintain as many ancient elements as was possible, as could be relevant to modern people, uh, but we would put a modern twist on it. And one of the things that just blew people away, and not always in a good way, was we didn't usually call the corners. Because, and in, in you can, you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I had never run across any 
um, research on the ancient Egyptian, uh, you know, rituals where they did that. I mean, that's just kind of a Wiccan thing. And, I, I, I mean, at least that was my understanding. So when we wouldn't call the corners, um, that would, that would um, disturb people sometimes. But, you know, if you were standing in the Isis temple or you were standing in the Sekhmet temple or whosoever temple uh, in ancient Egypt, I seriously doubt you had anybody calling corners. Now, if I'm wrong, tell me, and I stand corrected. <laughs> um, well, the thing is, you, you have to draw a distinction between rituals done in temples and rituals done um, in some sort of place that's never been used. The thing is, by using a temple repeatedly, the whole temple takes on um, an element of sanctity. So you don't really need True. a protective circle. You don't, you, don't, you don't need anything else because you're working within a sacred space. Um, mm-hmm. Things sort of start to get interesting when you're working outside of a temple. Um, I, when I do Grey Egyptian Magic, I actually work with a seven-direction system. So there are the four quarters, there's the direction that's straight up, the direction that's straight down, and there's also the center. So you're actually working with mm-hmm. a seven-directional seven system. But um, I've never come across anything where, where quarters are called as such. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, so, uh, so anyway, you know, so we we don't digress too much. <laughs> we'll get back to the Greeks here. Um, even yeah. though they were eclectic, um, did were there any un- underlying principles that sort of, um, you know, glued them together or you know gave them some cohesion? Um, yes, there are a number of um, elements of commonality. Um, the thing is that the Greeks were expected to, um, what's, what's the best way of putting it? Um, just trying to think. They were expected to, um, to do the right thing. Um, they had to demonstrate piety, which is El Sabea. So that would mean doing the right thing with respect to the gods, their parents, their city, and the deceased. So regarding the gods, it was important to observe all the public festivals as well as those in the home. So the the nature of the relationship between the Greeks and the deities was one of reciprocal favor, and the Greek word for that is charis. So votive gifts will be given in the hope of gratitude. Votive offerings took the form of foodstuffs, flowers, branches, shells, gold implements, and clay images of offerings. And actually, the most widespread offering was a granule of frankincense strewn in the flames. They would also pour out a libation or sponde to the gods so as to request their protection. And libations would normally be one or more of the following, um, wine, honey, olive oil, milk, or water. Um, another thing was that they believed in avoiding pollution. The word for that was miasma, wherever possible. So that was caused by either having sex, giving birth, coming into contact with the dead, and the very worst thing was murder. So there were specialists available who would advise people as to various purification techniques that they could use, and those techniques would normally involve some combination of bathing, salt water, fire, sulfur, and blood sacrifice. And one really neat thing that they did was that as they'd walk into a, um, uh, a sanctuary, they would pour pure water from a jug onto their hands, and that was called hernips. So they'd wash their hands before going in just to make sure that they were, that they were absolutely pure. Hmm. So 
you've got this idea of reciprocal favor where you um, make offers to the gods and then hope that the gods will show you favor by giving things to you when you need them. Now, you know, the idea of gratitude seems to be coming time and time again. It's, it's been really big over the last few years. So with the Greek gods, what you do is if you don't specifically want anything, you just thank them for what you have. You express gratitude. And then when you do need something, it's like you've made all these deposits in the bank. So you can then right. remind the gods, well, hey, I've, I've made all these offerings to you guys over the last few years, um, and I, I need some help. So that's that's when you right. then call on them. So the idea of gratitude can be seen to be going back to ancient Greek practices. Well, and, and I'm glad you said that because so often we see um, people. Well, I think you know some, 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 some. Not all by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but you know uh, some people. Um, you know whether I, I. You know whether they're pagans or something else. Um, I'm not sure they're so. Uh, aware or keen on this reciprocal relationship and instead they kind of think deity is an ATM machine where they just keep go pulling you know they just keep you know pulling out and pulling out and taking and taking you know and they never um, you know they they never replenish the bank so to speak you know and um, uh, you know I I think that's a a good reminder Um, it's nice to know they did you know they thought that back then and it sounds like they were probably Probably uh, civic-minded as well. Um, another thing that I think tends to uh, be omitted, um, I think, in modern-day modern paganism with a lot of people. Um, yeah, the thing is, it was all about, like I said, it was about demonstrating piety, doing the right thing by by the state, um, by your family and the like. So your whole life was regulated by the idea of what was doing of the right thing by the state. So, for instance, um, with young men, um, they would go off and, um, in the the presence of an older man, um, they'd have to be um, post-pubescent, of course, but typically you'd have um, a young man going off with... um, with, with, with an older man. So this is actually 4th century pre-BC and it was a coming-of-age initiation rite. So, so the older man would make known his attention and he'd abduct a beautiful youth. And so that was in imitation of the legend of Zeus carrying off Ganymede. And the two lovers had spent two months in the countryside feasting and hunting at the conclusion of that period. The youth was considered independent and his lover would present him with a warrior's robe, an ox, and a wine cup. And the youth would then join other independent youths and they would engage in hunting, sports, and ritual contests. The youth would then break away from his peers in order to marry. Um, throughout Greece, male youths would spend three quarters of their days in wrestling arenas and gymnasia. And they would be exercising their bodies and their minds in the company of older men. Training the body was done naked. And there's a wealth of Greek literature and art attesting to the appreciation of the youthful male form. So the thing is that um, um, adult males are expected to be to be active with a propensity towards warfare. Um, so then once they were too old to be active and go off and engage in war, then they were expected to get married and okay. and have and have and have kids. So the thing is that if they then didn't want to get married, 
then there were fines and the like that had been imposed on them. So oh. while they were young, they were expected to, to hang with other men. So for some guys, that's perfectly okay. Other guys would feel uncomfortable doing that. But then once they were too old to engage in warfare, they were expected to get married. And again, if they weren't prepared to get married, there'd be fines imposed on them. So you've got this idea of sexual orientation was institutionalized. It was all about doing what was best for the state. And what was best for the all right, state... So wait, 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 wait. Wait, 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 wait. Before you go too far, um, all right, let let me backtrack a little bit. The the first part of it, when you said the youth, you know, went off with the guy. um, You know, I have to ask: was was that a subtle reference to homosexuality? Because David Hillman, who is a favorite here on the show, you know, he told me once. He said there really wasn't the term um, homosexuality in the Greek world. You know, when men were with men, you know, even if that meant they were having sex, it, it was just looked upon as natural and it wasn't a thing. You know, it was as natural as maybe a man being with a woman. And so I'm just curious about that. You know, was was that, that a time that, of, um, that's, that's, you know... That's my, that's my understanding as well. The terms homosexual and heterosexual are modern identifications. And they're, they're of limited usefulness. It was just something that you did. So um, with men who felt drawn to men, then they could either be with, you know, with, with youths or they could be with their slaves or they could pay for a, for a male prostitute. Um, whereas, um, you know, you have the option of swinging whatever way you wanted to. Right. Um, but and the, and is, the, no the really older men... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, the thing is that there was no... It wasn't really... I'm just I'm just trying to find the right the right words to express. It was a case of um you, you could really go either way depending on circumstances and you weren't discriminated against for doing it. And if you were okay. happy to as an older man if you were happy hanging out with younger men then that was perfectly okay, but you were expected to eventually get married and have kids. That was that So was so about that about that, I want to ask about that. A couple things. So um, the fine. I want to hear a little bit more about the fine. Was it a lot of money, or did did, did it depend upon, you know, your uh, your maybe your class and you, you know your wealth? And was having children considered an obligation to the state so that they would, you know, make more soldiers or women to produce more babies? I mean, why uh, why did they have to get married unless it was for procreation? It was for procreation. Because the thing is that um, in ancient times, the strength of a nation was determined by, by the number of men that they had of spear-carrying age. The, the more warriors ah. you had, the more, the, more, the more powerful you were. So it was all about, do, like, like I said, um, being ancient Greek was all about doing the right thing. So in this yeah. case, it's when, when you're young and able, you go off to war, um, you engage in the democratic process if you have two Athenian parents, um, and then when you're too old to, to engage in warlike activities, then you get married, and typ- typically um, you wind up marrying a girl who's barely pubescent herself. Well, that was that was my kids. next thought. You you end up with all of these old men with child brides. Yes, that's that's basically wow. the way that it works. And the thing is, it's it's all about what was best for the state. 
So with yeah. girls, they basically wanted them to um, to have kids. Um, the only way out of that, the only method of freedom that, that women had was was to become priestesses. That was the only okay. activity that they had where, where they could have a, a measure of freedom. Um, it was, well, well, Athens was not a good place to be a woman. Well, that's that's where I want to go next. I, I do want to talk about Athens and democracy, but you know we've kind of broached the women, the woman subject, and um, and again, well, can, you know, can I, I, can I, I just, want. Can I just can I just can I just say something about democracy? Sure. The thing is that when, sure, when sure. people think when people think of of, of ancient Greece, um, they think of the Greeks shaping our society that they that they're rational, they replace supernatural explanations of the concept of a universe governed by laws of nature. So philosophy, religion, art, and science flourished, and many of the core values of Western civilization can be attributed to the Greeks, including democracy and the rights of individuals to have freedom of speech. Now, the thing is that as long as you don't look too carefully, all that sounds really wonderful, but the Greeks saw themselves as a race apart. They were privileged and educated. They all had slaves to perform menial tasks, and they were surrounded by people who they referred to as foreigners. So they had thousands of slaves toiling in mining, agricultural, manufacturing industries, and those slaves enabled the Greeks to enjoy their leisurely lifestyle. Um, so during the golden age of Greece, Attica, which is the city-state that was um, that had Athens at its core, had a population of 315,000. But power was in the hands of 43,000 citizens. Those citizens were males, who were aged 21 and over, with two free Athenian parents who did not engage in any manual labour and were not subject to anyone. So the democratic process was limited to 14% of the population. So hmm. if you engaged in manual labour or if you only had one Athenian parent or you were a foreigner or a woman, forget it. You had no say over how the civilization ran. And so it, it wasn't really a true democracy. People. No, no. Well, the thing is, you had the seeds of democracy there. But in true democracy, um, the democratic process should be open to everyone. Right, um, right. Whereas, and, whereas and in that, Greece, that's it clearly wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good point. I mean, you know, and, and and I, you know, as someone who's you know not a fan of the Abrahamic religions, you know, I tend to like to remind those people that at least the seeds of democracy um, were were planted in a pagan um, civilization, uh, but it was far from perfect, obviously. Obviously, yeah. But the thing is that, like you said, that the seeds were planted. And, uh, and yeah. that, that idea was then developed. But you know, you look at you look at kind of like say for instance, you look at Australia. Um, the indigenous peoples in Australia only got the right to vote in 1970. And until then, they 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 weren't they weren't considered citizens. They they didn't have the right to vote. It's the same thing in this country. You know, women had to battle for the, for the right to vote. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, and women in Turkey could vote before American women had the right to vote. I mean, you know, yeah. um, I, I, I don't, I don't think a lot of uh, a lot of American women even realize that. When anyway, go, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was just saying that um, we're very lucky now that everyone has the right to vote. Yeah. 
Well, you know, unless unless the uh, you live in a state where uh, there's gerrymandering and your vote doesn't really count for much, or you live in a a state where the Republicans have managed to figure out a way to prevent you from voting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but we're, we're we're very close to a true democracy, though, which 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 for me should be one person, one vote, regardless yeah. of who you and are. Co- and, and and corporations or in people. <laughs> Emmett Romney had it wrong. Well, it shouldn't really be talking about politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about democracy. That's politics. <laughs> well, yeah, um, or, yeah. Or, 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 the, or the lack, uh, the lack of being able to participate. Uh, you know, that's politics. Um, but, but let's, yeah, um, uh, let's I, go ahead. I, and... I just, yeah, I just wanted to, to point one thing out. One thing that really blew me away when I was looking, when I was researching this book, was um, I would have thought that the philosophers would have um, abstained from slavery. They would have thought, no, this is wrong. They would have seen through it. But um, Aristotle had 13 slaves. Plato had six slaves. Um, And so while some slaves were treated well, they were part of the household, um, they they were expected to be tortured before giving evidence in Athenian courts. And Aristotle justified slavery quite simply by arguing that there were natural hierarchies so that slaves deserve to be slaves, women should stay in their homes, and free Greek citizens should rule over them all. And with the exception of a few philosophers, very few Greeks disagreed with this. So Aristotle basically looked upon the slave as an animate tool. But he effectively prophesied the end of slavery by stating that it would continue until all menial work was done by self-operating machines. And it's interesting to note that while it's not the only factor, the Industrial Revolution contributed to the ending of slavery in the 19th century because we had machines to do a lot of menial tasks that would have otherwise been done by slaves. Good point. So were there yeah. any Greeks that were more evolved, Tony, you know, that, um, you know, <laughs> saw saw the inhumanity and the, you know, uh, the, the you, know, you know, that maybe saw this hierarchy as not... Um, uh, the way to go, you know, maybe saw women as equal, heaven forbid, or that slavery was an evil, or or were they all pretty much on the same page? They were pretty much on the same page as as far as I can tell. I mean, if you had people um, like Aristotle and, and Plato owning slaves, um, and even the poorest households had at least one or two slaves, it was, it was just yeah. the way it was in those days. No one no one really questioned the status quo. And the thing is, when privilege enters into an equation, you don't want to give up your lifestyle. It's, mm-hmm. it's nice to not have to do all the, all the menial tasks at home. It's nice to have slaves do everything for you, um, right. even though it is wrong. So I can imagine people mm-hmm. not wanting to give that away. We're lucky that um, there's so much automation now that we, we have dishwashers. Um, there are there are all sorts of machines that we have that, that make lives so much easier for us. You know, we don't even have to True. cook if we don't want to. There are TV dinners. Um, you know, you can get takeout. Um, you don't need people slaving away in the kitchen. I use the term slaving right. away colloquially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so speaking of slaving away in the kitchen, uh, which is usually the woman's job, um, let's you know let's talk about uh, women in 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 Greece now. Um, and, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just comparing notes. You know, I brought up David Hillman, and he you know he he was a favorite on the show. But he I'll be honest with you, you know, he's also controversial. In uh, in his take was you know he he thought of himself as a feminist. He was an ally. Uh, to women, uh, and um, he uh, he believed that because he could uh, translate his own Greek and he wasn't relying on you know maybe Christian translations, he saw so many opportunities where women actually had more power than um, you know maybe is generally taught. Uh, in academia, you know, he talked about how uh, women. Um, you know, uh, controlled the bastions of pharmacology, which basically meant they had life or death in their hands. You know, that, uh, you know, he talked about the, the, um, uh, the oracles of Delphi, how influential they were, uh, the priestesses. Um, do you, can you um, agree with him, or do you think that was an exaggeration? Um, the thing is, it's, it's actually an issue that is still being debated. Um, the thing is that the, the um, most commonly accepted view has been that women were treated badly. Um, basically, um, they were trapped in their own homes. So the thing is, you know, while the poor had one-room one houses, the wealthy would invariably have separate living quarters for the women. So women would remain out of sight, either at the back of a one-story house or in the top story of a two-story house. And women were expected to remain in the home and be in charge of all domestic activities. So the slaves would be sent to work outside. And while the women stayed inside and contributed to the house by spinning or weaving. So the only occasions when respectable women would venture outdoors, they'd be accompanied by their slaves or by female friends. And those occasions tended to be connected with religion. Women would also prepare corpses for burial. So there are a few festivals exclusively for women, and those were you know, the few occasions that women had to um, venture out of doors. And in general, women had no political rights. They were always under the control of a man, either their father, husband, or next of kin. Women who were poor, spinsters, or widows normally resorted to working as either prostitutes or courtesans to support themselves. Rather than marry, such women would enter into a list binding arrangement similar to that of common law of the wife. In Greek society, my understanding was that, gym, that generally women fell into one of three classes. They were prostitutes or prisons for pleasure, concubines for daily personal services, and for wives to bear children and manage households. So the only escape that women had was connected with religion. Um, they could serve as priestesses. So in general, female deities were served by priestesses, while male deities were served by priests. So the exception was Apollo at Delphi, being served by Pythia, who was always a woman. And also on Mount Parnassus above Delphi, women acted as maenads in a festival of Dionysus. So religious office presented the one area where Greek women assumed roles were equal and comparable to those of men. Now, having said all that, that's pretty well the established view. Um, there was a woman called Joan Bretton Connolly who wrote a text called Portrait of a Priestess, Women and Ritual in Ancient Greece. And in that text, she actually 
argues much the same as um, Dr. Hillman argues, that women had a far greater role than was, than was um, actually believed. The problem, okay. that we have with, with the problem that we have with scholarship is that people tend to project their beliefs, their system of ethics, their system of morality backwards in time. So, for instance, with the ancient Greeks, they're thought of as being rational and logical. So, um, because, so they have to be as Christians are now. So, in Christian households up until the 19th century, um, women were seen and not heard. So, they tended to project that idea onto women. Um, it was the same thing with magic. From a Christian standpoint, magic is something that's inherently evil. And so a lot of academics would either argue that the Greeks did not practice magic, and when they cautiously admitted that some magic was practiced, they said it was tended to be practiced by foreigners. And it was only in the Hellenistic era that you had that you had more magic being, being practiced than it was before. So they would argue that magic was something that was marginalized, and the Greeks wouldn't stoop practicing something as irrational as that. But you, what was happening was that these people were projecting their own prejudices onto the past. And interestingly, when right. they did that, they'd argue that, that magic was, was evil, that religion was okay. But then when they, were when they were asked to define the difference between magic and religion, they couldn't agree on what the difference was. Some would <laughs> say that, some would say that um, magic was something that was um, done where, where you had a magician and one client, whereas religion was something that was done where you had a large group of people. Well, there are exceptions to all those rules. What happens right. when a community is suffering drought? They bring in a magician, and the magician works a spell to bring in rain. So you've got a spell that benefits a whole community, a whole town. So here you've got a magician working with a whole community rather than with an individual client. So right. there are exceptions to whatever whatever distinction you, you try to make between between magic and religion, there will always be exceptions to it. I actually devoted um, a whole chapter on this in my book because it's not just academics who discriminate against the practice of magic. There are a lot of Hellenic Reconstructionists now who basically say that, that the practice of magic has no place at all in, in Greek society and that people should not be practicing it now. But the point is that all the Greeks practiced magic right from the very beginning. It was practiced throughout their history. Well, and and it, it and did it have something to do with the fact that it was hard to distinguish uh, magic from ritual and religion? I mean, I'm I, I'm thinking about uh, this story that always makes me chuckle about these Christian women who uh, who got together because one of the women's husbands was having an affair, and you know they got together and uh, burned a picture of the you know the mistress. And you know it looked an awful lot like a you know a, a, a pagan banishing kind of a thing mm -hmm. you know a burn, you know burning something in the cauldron you know that no longer serves you or you want to rid yourself of. But if you would have told them that they were practicing witchcraft, they would have said, "Oh no," you know, even though everything was uh, pretty much the same. Um, exactly, and and to give a contemporary example. Um, when you go to southern Italy, um, you've got women practicing strago, which, which is the way it's basically Italian witchcraft. But yet, 
they will go to church every Sunday, and as far as they're concerned, they're good Catholic women, just that they engage in a few folk practices, which we recognize as magic, but they don't see them that way. They see themselves as, as devout Catholics. Right, 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 right. So um, interesting. So the thing is, the, the earliest references to, to magic that we have are in the writings of Homer. Um, but as for um, physical evidence, when we go to... There are Greek epitaphs in, in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is the area that's now known as Turkey. So there are magical curses written on gravestones. And we have attestations of that from the 7th century BC onwards. Um, so basically, if you were to disturb the contents of the grave, then there'd be all sorts of curses coming down on you. Um, 4th century BC in, in Sparta... Um, there were um, settlers who landed on the island of Thera around 630 BCE. They came together and modelled wax dolls. As the dolls were burned, the settlers invoked a curse that should their oaths be broken, then they, their descendants, and their property would melt like the dolls. Um, then there are the cursed tablets, which um, the first ones were, were produced in the 5th century BCE, and the last ones were produced in the 5th century CE. So you're looking at an area spanning northern Europe, sorry, uh, northern Africa and all of Europe. So the practice of curse tablets endured a thousand years. They were very extensively produced in Greece. The thing is you had pretty well everyone in Greece practicing practicing magic in one form or another. So mm. my, my attitude is that there are precedents for practicing magic. You don't have to practice it in order to venerate the Greek gods, but there are certainly precedents for it. I personally feel that there is a place for for the practice of magic, or what I see as the practice of magic, but other people feel more comfortable just sticking to um to, to various hymns and orations to the gods. And if they want to do that, that's cool. Um, I try to push the idea of finding your own path, finding your own way of venerating the Greek gods, because after all, that's what the ancient Greeks did. They all had their own practices, and what was done in the household was different to what was done in country areas and what was done in the cities. Well, one of the things that David used to talk about was, and, and I'm gathering from what you know, you're talking about. You know, the Greeks were so eclectic. I'm sure this wasn't across the board, uh, but he he talked about how the Greek religion involved um, conjuring uh, demons. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a little bit different than the norm, right? I mean, that's, uh, uh, you know, I mean, like I know ceremonial magicians do that sort of thing, um, but is, uh, I, you know, I don't think the average witch, for instance, necessarily does that in witchcraft, um, at, at least, you know, the way uh, I learned it, uh, you know, we didn't call on demons uh, or demons, if you want to say it that way, uh, to assist us to, um, you know, further our, our desires. Okay, the, the, the term daemon in ancient Greece actually referred to a spirit. It didn't have any connotation of being good or evil. The Christians ah. um, bastardized that term to demon, and a demon is an entity that, that is always evil. So the thing is that... Greeks would differentiate between El Daimon, which, which is a good spirit, and a Kapodaimon, which, which is an evil spirit. But most of them tend to be tended to be neutral. So things like the nymphs, 
nymphs are technically daemons. So anyone oh. who calls on nature spirits, they're working with daemons. And interestingly, oh. when the um, when the Greek religion was was suppressed by the Christians, the the veneration of the nymphs was something that endured um, through centuries of persecution. It's been suggested that people probably started off venerating the nymphs before venerating anything else. Um, Interesting. I, I think it's very difficult to go out into nature without feeling the presence of, of spirits in nature. They're just so prevalent. We're divorced from them if we live in the city. Go out to a forest, close your eyes, and be as receptive as you can. You will feel things around you. So so that would also uh, include the fairies, I would imagine, too. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, te- technically, what we call a fairy is what the, is what the um, ancients would have called nymphs, and they're all technically daemons. A, a daemon means a spirit. And one of the really cool things about ancient Greece, um, you've heard the term that, that you don't choose the god that you serve, but the gods choose you. There were people in ancient Greece who were referred to as nymph-possessed. So they would give themselves over to the nymphs, and typically they would go off to a wild area. They might find themselves a cave. They would grow gardens there. They'd, they'd carve into the rocks around the cave. And then those areas would become areas of pilgrimage. So people would come in. They'd have a look around. They'd, they'd give donations of money and the like, make all sorts of offerings. And these guys would devote their lives to the nymphs. They're technically huh. daemons as well. So, I mean, the Christians have a lot to answer for when they um, bastardize the term daemon to demon. I mean, for me, a daemon is a very neutral term. Okay. And well, thank you for that. And actually, nature spirits that doesn't seem to be a bad thing at all. And also, um, Agathos daemon, or the good daemon, was a, um, was a snake spirit, and that was heavily involved in, in household worship. You know, typically... Um, Greek offerings were, were meal-based. So the very first morsel of food was thrown into the hearth, and it was dedicated to Hestia, the goddess of the hearth. And the family would have their meal, and then at the end of the meal, they would pour out a libation of a few drops of wine to Agathos Samon, who was a snake deity. Hmm. Um, he was one of the few daemons who was venerated throughout all of Greece. Um, his worship actually, actually spread to Egypt as well. Um, if you go to the PGM text, there are references to Agathos Daemon there as well. Huh. Well, you've you've uh, you, you've enlightened me tonight, uh, Tony. Thank you. I didn't. Uh, oh, I, 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 love I definitely. This stuff. I, I love sharing it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely had the wrong impression about the daemons. Um, um, yeah. So let's um, let's go ahead and move on to uh, the use of hallucinogens. I mean, maybe at least from my perspective, you might have a different one. I think uh, one of the stories we hear the most is, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries, and you know, what were they really in, you know, ingesting to see these, um, you know, to, to see these visitations, I guess, of, uh, you know, of, of Demeter or, or Persephone. Um, so, so speak a little bit about uh, the use of hallucinogens. You know, um, you know, David Hillman says it was it pervaded the ancient world. I mean, it wasn't used just in in rituals like the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, but 
you know, the, he he got in a lot of trouble for that. You know, he couldn't even, uh, uh, you know, in, in in when he was trying to defend his thesis, he was able to defend it, but they made him pull that chapter out because status, you know, academic status quo did not, uh, had a hard time uh, with the fact that, um, uh, you, you know, he was saying that, you know, hallucinogens were just, um, a common occurrence. Um, so, uh, are, are you in agreement there, or would you um, say, you know, say otherwise? Um, I, I am in agreement. I'm actually a, a great fan of, of David's book, The Chemical Muse. Um, it was quite an quite an eye-opening book for me. Um, the ancient Greeks were no different to anyone else. All the all the people around them used drugs. You know, it's the same sort of thing with the, with the Hebrews. The Hebrews were thought of as abstaining from drugs, but yet um, when you look at the temple incense, um, a case can be made for arguing that one of the components of temple incense was actually was actually cannabis. So when the high priest would go into the holy of holies, and he, that he'd go in with with a rope tied around his ankle, he'd be overcome by the presence of the Lord, and they'd have to drag him out. It was more likely he was stoned off his nuts. Because you know, there was there was cannabis there. Now, regarding the minist- the mysteries of Eleusis, very little is known about them because initiates kept their silence. Um, but they would talk about ineffable visions after drinking a potion. So what some academics have done is that they've on similar potions. Wait, Tony, 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 wait, 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 Tony, something's happening with your audio. Um, are you doing anything different? Because um, no. we were totally is, losing you. Is that a little you. bit better? I had, I had the, um, the, the, the microphone away from my mouth. Is that better? Yeah, it is. So what you were just saying, please repeat it because we didn't get any of it. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I was just saying that very little is known about the mysteries of Eleusis because initiates kept their silence. Um, but there are references to ineffable visions that people had after drinking a potion. So some academics have actually found similarities between those descriptions and those of the Mesoamerican mushroom rites. So um, some people have thought that the ancient Greeks hit on a method to isolate a hallucinogen from ergo, specifically ergo of rye, which is a purple-brown protrusion from the ears of rye. And that would have produced an experience comparable to that of LSD or psilocybin. And ergo of rye actually provides the raw material to produce LSD. So while no rye grew in Greece, sorry, grew in Greece, wheat and barley did. And the ergo growing on them were both found to contain the same alkaloids as ergo. You know, it's been suggested Okay, we're you know, losing um, you. Insane. Tony, we're losing you again. We're losing you again. Uh, I, 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 you're still not back with us. Uh, no. No. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes. Keep doing whatever okay. you're doing. Okay, I'm actually holding the phone in my hand. I'm really sorry for that. Um, That's okay. So I was, yeah, I was basically trying to trying to point out that um, while ergo growing on rye is the raw material for LSD, 
um, ergo growing on wheat and barley um, produces the same compounds. Um, okay. So it, it's actually been suggested that the that the visions that that the um, that the witches had at Salem were a result of drink of, of um, ingesting bread that had been made with with malt, with mouldy rye bread. So that would have had um, okay. ergo in it. Had it would have had something like LSD. Um, so the people infer that the mysteries of Eleusis involve the ingestion of a hallucinogen. Um, but there's another really cool example that I could cite. Um, the ancient Greeks would often go into oracular sites. So there was an oracle of the dead um, on, on Aharon. And there's a, a, um, a professor, Sotiris Dakaris, who discovered large quantities of black lumps of hashish there. So in ancient times, seekers would descend through a corridor into a small dark room. They'd be accompanied by priests, and they would spend... 29 days underground. So that's a lunar cycle. They would dine on beans, mussels, and pork, which are foods related to the dead. Seekers would experience temple sleep or incubation with its inherent revelations. So needless to say, living in almost total darkness for a full lunar month in the presence of chanting priests would have to lead to altered states of consciousness. Um, but yeah. once you've got hashish vapor being added to the equation, you pretty well guaranteed to have some sort of incredible visions. I would um, imagine. <laughs> yeah, and w when, when you look at the Oracle of Delphi, um, you had a priestess um, sitting on her tripod over a fissure from which, from which um, volcanic vapors would be coming out. So she would go um, into an altered state, state of consciousness and, um, and she would start to prophesy. So then those, the, the garble that she would come out with would be interpreted by, by priests and they would come out with hexameter, hexameter prose. Um, and interestingly, there was a, um, there was a geological study done um, like about 100 years ago that found no evidence at all for any volcanic fissures at Delphi. So academics jumped on that and said that all the accounts that we have of, of the Pythia was furious. And, um, but then um, in 2001, there was, a, there was another study that was done that showed that under Delphi, there was an intersection of two fault lines and a swarm of fractures. So that would provide pathways for rising groundwater, including a spring below the temple. So you'd have light hydrocarbon gases coming up, which would be capable of producing mild narcotic effects. Hmm. Um, well, about that though, I, I, I mean, uh, so let, let's let's talk about the Oracle of Delphi for a minute because you know that's sort of a controversial thing. You know, the the priestess, you know, we're told talked in this garbled, uh, unintelligible voice. Um, have you learned anything different? Meaning, um, you know, I, I've always heard it told that the person who translated her garble, you know, was very political. And, you know, and that sort of felt like it sort of marginalized the whole experience, you know, that maybe you could, you know, pay for, uh, you know, a, a, a particular prophecy going your way or, uh, you know, maybe the priest could would be paid off and, you know, it, it, and, you know he would say something, uh, you know, I, 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 you, you, 
I don't know if I'm making my point, but you know, it it, it wasn't a legitimate, uh, you know, divine download. You know, it was tainted, uh, you know, by maybe you know politics or personal agenda or something. Uh, my my response to that would be that that may well have happened occasionally. Um, there, there may well have been um, money going under the table and the priest perverting a message that's coming through. But if that happened all the time, the oracle would have fallen into disrepute. But the point hmm, was that point. people kept people kept going there for centuries. Yeah. And yeah. it was thought it was it was the most famous oracle in, in, in ancient Greece. And you can't I, I don't think you can sustain a life. You you need to uh, unless you have a lot of a lot of political clout behind you. Um, you, yeah. you need something genuine. People willingly went along to the went along to the Oracle of Delphi and um and and paid to hear what the priestess had to say. Yeah. Um I w- well, I would be inclined to think that most of the time it was genuine. If it if it wasn't it would have died out long before it did. It, it was the Christians well, you know, who I, basically destroyed all the oracles. Sorry. Well, you know, and, and you may be right, and I hope you're right. I would like to believe you're right. But I can't help but think of all the women I know who keep paying for tarot readings, and hardly any of them ever come true. You know? or, or they're so vague, it's sort of like the quatrains of... Um, Oh, who's the guy? Oh, Nostradamus. That you yeah. can make them fit things, you know, if you really try hard enough, you know. Um, anyway, um, you I, know, I, 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 I mean, I would with, like. I, I, I think ahead. that with clairvoyance, um, even if you have someone who's genuine, someone who's the real deal, they may be able to channel information that's relevant, that, that that's accurate, but. If you force someone to do it constantly, day in and day out, then after a while, um, there's going to be um, there will be inaccuracies coming in. And the easiest way to pass off prophecy is to make it incredibly, incredibly vague. I mean, with, with a yeah. lot of tarot readers, um, they're, they're very good at cold reading. Um, they will um, come up with very general statements. Well, you know, um, people I shouldn't really be naming names, but people who claim to um, deal with those who've departed. Mm-hmm. So they will come up with a really vague statement. You know, I'm, I'm getting a message that someone's Uncle Jim has passed over. And um, mm-hmm. so you use cold reading techniques. And as you draw someone in, they, they give you more and more information, and then you keep embellishing that. So you give them something yeah. that, that they feel is genuine. Um, but so even with someone who can channel genuine material um, I think that every once in a while um, if, you, if you force them to keep coming up with material constantly you're going to have inaccuracies creeping in like like um, psychics working on hotlines there's, there's only yeah. so much that, that, that they can do uh, and, and then eventually they're going to have to res- resort to um, fairly vague set of prophecies that people can infer whatever they can infer whatever they want from them if they're sufficiently vague exactly yeah yeah. Um, well, Tony, we're uh, we, we uh, kind of crossed the hour here, and um, I oh. still want to ask you. <laughs> I know it, it just flew by. Um, so uh, before we so go, quickly. though, you did. You see, I, I mean, the, the time just flies. Um, I, you know, I do want to ask you. Um, 
uh, you know, if you think knowledge of the Greek religion uh, is important for us moving forward as a foundation for anything. Um, I personally think it is important. Um, a lot of magic is actually based on Greek religion. Like, for instance, when you when you look at the Solomonic writings, the Solomonic grimoires, um, the ones that we have um, are in Latin, and it's believed that they that they're translations of Hebrew originals. But um, there was a uh, there was a text called the Hegramantea that was that was translated um, a few years ago, and it's basically a Greek text which predates the earliest Latin text that we have of the Solomonic writings. So the inference is that the Solomonic grimoires that we have don't come from Hebrew sources, but they actually come from Greek sources. So by studying Greek religion, we acquire a better understanding of, um, of, of the various grimoires that are, that, are, um, that are tapped into. Also, there are a few of us who... Um, are interested in Greek magic or the practice of theurgy. So having a grounding in Greek religion would intensify those practices. It's much the same thing um, if you want to study the Kabbalah. You can study the Kabbalah on its own, but to fully appreciate its depth and its subtleties, it's good to be conversant with the Torah. You know the the, right. the um the, the the Hebrew Old Testament, so you know you can see where everything came out of. Um, I think it's important to have a um a, a firm foundation. Um, there was a text written by um Kieran Barry a few years ago called the Greek Kabbalah, and he actually argues that everything you have in the Kabbalah comes from Greek sources. Whether that's hmm. true or not, um, I'll leave that up to to readers to to make a decision. But the thing is that in order to fully understand what he's saying there, you really need to be conversant with um, with ancient Greek religion. It underlies yeah. so many, so many practices that we have now. I think it's something that, that people should really be acquainted with. Okay. All right. Um, so um, I'll throw this out at you. What do you think is the biggest misconception um, about uh, the Greeks or Greek religion, or what do you what mistakes do you see modern pagans doing um, who claim to be, um, you know, maybe revering the ancient Greek gods or goddesses? Um, I actually address a number of those issues in the book. Um, I've mentioned one or two of them. One is that the um, many people believe that the ancient Greeks didn't practice magic. They did. Yeah. Um, there are those who um, are into the practice of, of Greek religion. They think that there's only one way that the ancient Greeks venerated their gods, and that's actually not the case. There are numerous ways of venerating them. The way the Greeks have venerated the gods in their households is different to how they were venerated in the cities, um, the, the various fratries, and also out in the country. Um, so there's no one way of venerating the Greek gods. There are some Hellenic reconstructionists who limit themselves to the 12 Olympic gods. And the thing is that while there were 12 Olympic gods, um, their composition actually changed over time. So um, there's one version of the Olympic gods that we have in the writings of Homer. So he 
says that the, that the, um, that the original 12 were Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Hades, Hestia, Ares, Aphrodite, Phobos Apollo, Artemis, Hermes, Pallas Athena, and Hephaestus. And I actually came across one text online where someone was arguing that this was in perfect balance because you had six male deities, or six male gods, and five and and six fem- and six female goddesses. So it was perfect balance. But as time went on, Hestia came out of the twelve, so she looked after the um the half of Mount Olympus, and her position was was replaced with Dionysus. So all of a sudden you had seven male gods and five female gods. So that nice pairing of males and females of you know perfect balance kind of went out the window. You can't right. really limit yourself to the to the um twelve Olympic gods because the Greeks actually venerated a whole slew of other gods. There there were lesser gods, there were the daemons, you had the nymphs and the like. Uh, plus there were heroes. The best known of the heroes was Hercules. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what um, I would like to see, I mean, a lot of a lot of Greek religion was restricted because women had limited access to various temples. So I'd like to see it opened up to everyone. So whoever feels the call of the Greek gods should be able to venerate the Greek gods. It doesn't matter if you're of Greek descent or non-Greek descent, whether you're a man or woman. And you know, even with the priests, the priests um, couldn't be disabled. So anyone who was disabled was basically um, precluded from occupying a priesthood. So there are all these discriminatory provisions that the ancient Greeks had that have no place in in our society. Another misconception is that um, people point to animal sacrifice. And I've heard it said that you can't be a Hellenic Reconstructionist unless you engage in animal sacrifice. Well, we're not going to go back to public animal sacrifice. I mean, that's why religions like Santeria... Um, will yeah. never be be widely accepted because they 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 still sacrifice animals. If you want to have meat that you want to sacrifice to a particular to a particular god, then go to the supermarket, go to Slater right, Brothers, right. Um, get yourself yeah. some meat and 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 sacrifice that. But the thing is, you know, like like I said, it it was perfectly acceptable to give offerings of first fruits, have votive offerings, and I actually push for the idea of. Um, bloodless offerings but you know if you if you're hell-bent on sacrificing animals then um you know obviously if you're working in a slaughterhouse you can you can dedicate the deaths of the animals to the gods um if you go off hunting if you're hunting large game you can dedicate that to artemis smaller game can can be um dedicated to pan um if you're fishing you can dedicate your catch to poseidon um, you yeah, know, it's, it's if you're hell bent on it, but I actually push for for bloodless offerings. Yeah, in the yeah, book. It, that's uh, yeah, that that seems more evolved. Um, yeah. Well, Tony, I have I, I have enjoyed our conversation tonight, and um, I really I'm going to have to bring it to a close. Yeah. I know, I know. Well, well, you know, you you have so much information to offer, and you've um, you've really given us an incredible amount tonight. Um, so I guess I'd just like to close by saying, is there um, anything I haven't asked you um, that you uh, feel you you know you you, you definitely want to say that uh, um, you know that we didn't give it, get a chance to go there? This is your your last opportunity. Okay. Um... I have a Facebook page, Tony Wiswicki author. 
um, so people can um, like that page and see what I'm doing. I also have a website which is hermeticmagic.net. That's magic with a CK. And if people are interested in my book on Hellenismos, which equips you with the tools to start to find your own path to venerate the ancient Greek gods, it's available through Amazon, through Barnes & Noble, um, also through the Llewellyn website. And if anyone lives in the, in the L.A. area, um, I'm going to various events and things. They can, they can hit me up then. I usually have a couple of copies of the book with me. Okay, and um, I, well, I know you're going to be doing the Joseph Campbell Roundtable at the uh, Museum of Woman, and you're probably at uh, Pagan Pride, uh, yes. you know, for uh, um, local listeners. Yeah, I'm also going to be in Ipsa Facto um, in, in a couple of weeks' time. That, that's um, in, in Fullerton. So I've already done a number of talks. Um, I, was at, um, I was at Pan Pipes and the Green Man. Um, I was at the Dragon and the Rose. So I'm slowly doing around, slowly getting the word out there to um to various people. And um Awesome. Um, I, I just see it as, as a wonderful opportunity to to share what I've learned about the about the ancient Greek gods and share my love of them with people. It's well been quite you're, a journey you're doing for a great me. job. Yeah, you're Thank doing you. a great I really job. Appreciate that. Well, the best of luck to you, uh, you know, promoting your Thank new you. book and uh, have an awful lot of fun uh, when you're out there giving talks. Uh, you know, uh, it's obvious from our conversation tonight uh, they will certainly learn a lot. So, um, you know, we certainly appreciate you, uh, your, you know, you and your expertise. Thank you so much for your kind words and thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, it's been a wonderful experience. Well, totally a pleasure, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. So um, I guess we'll <laughs> I say good night. Okay, good night. Okay, Take bye care. Bye bye. Okay, so uh, that was a lot of fun, and uh, I'm sure you learned a lot. Uh, I know I did, uh, but do pick up uh, Tony's book. Uh, it's uh, it's it's quite a feat uh, of research, uh, beautifully done. And if you feel uh, drawn to uh, the Greek religion, uh, would be a great place to start. Um, so before we go tonight, um, there's a word from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as being separate from nature, separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock as you. When I came out of this, this is my mother, I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. Uh, in it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddesses Gaia. I bet you didn't know Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. And these spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. 
If you've always wanted to see these places yourself but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story right from your very own armchair. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. Now, um, I will be back with you uh, next Wednesday uh, on the 22nd, and uh, my guest will be Lisa Kay, and uh, we're going to be talking an awful lot about uh, Intuition on Demand, a step-by-step guide to powerful intuition that you can trust. So, uh, a great tool uh, to develop uh, and, uh, you know, can serve you well. So... Uh, That about does it for me tonight, dear listeners. Uh, Thank you again for your uh, listener loyalty. Uh, As always, uh, I ask that if uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine has uh, uh, been a reliable source of information to you, if it helps you uh, stay connected, uh, if it has impacted your life in a a positive way, um, I would really invite you to go to my website, karentate.com, go to the Goddess Store page, scroll all the way down to the bottom. Uh, There's a PayPal button there. If you could make a small donation of any amount, it would certainly be appreciated. Or if you'd like to take advantage of any of the offers for books, um, take advantage of the free meditations that are there, uh, there's Goddess Greeting Cards, uh, Femme DVD, uh, Femme Women Saving, uh, Women Healing the World, uh, lots of good stuff there. So uh, please... Um, um, you know, help out Voices of the Sacred Feminine and uh, help me pay for airtime so that I continue to bring you uh, great guests uh, almost every week. All right. Well, uh, that about does it. Um, I hope you're managing to stay cool. I know it's quite a struggle, uh, even here near the beach. Um, so uh, have a wonderful summer and in- enjoy yourself. Uh, stay cool and hydrated. Good night, dear listeners. Until next week, goodbye.